On today's show, we are going all in on Robert Pattinson's The Batman. This movie is coming in red hot. It is the movie of early 2022, and we examine all of the influences that have gone behind the making of Robert Pattinson's Matt Reeves' The Batman. Stay with us. We are gonna we are gonna show you uh, uh, the the source material, the images that they're pulling that that are creating what is easily the most anticipated uh, movie of. 2022. Also, does this sound familiar? Take a bunch of really popular, really hot artists and start a creator-owned comic company. If that sounds familiar to you, it should, but it's not Image Comics. Today, we discuss the rise of Pacific Comics. Jack Kirby, Neil Adams, Mike Grell, Dave Stevens, the precursor to the model that Image Comics would eventually use all began in 1981 with the formation of Pacific Comics. Uh, we have that and so much more today on another edition of Rob Observations. Hey everybody, this is Rob Liefeld and we are ready, set, go with another episode of Rob Observations. Rob Observations is the name of this uh, crazy podcast where we look at comic books, movies, fantasy, games, toys, all kind of through these, this this sci-fi superhero lens that I grew up with. And, and there is not a single episode where I'm not coming on the air with you and I'm like, what? How'd this happen? How did comic books go so mainstream? Like, not just a little mainstream, so mainstream, so mainstream that they are now something that I talk about with my daughter. My daughter who goes, uh, after attending the premiere with me of Spider-Man No Way Home, goes and sees it multiple times with her girlfriends. And she comes home and they said they cried. And 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 they all want to watch the Andrew Garfield Spider-Man movies now because you got to understand when, when the Andrew Garfield Spider-Man movies came out, you know, my daughter was seven. Okay. Um, that, uh, you know, my oldest was, was, uh, was, was 13. My youngest son was, was 11 and, and okay. So my daughter was eight. So, so again, this is, um, you know, so, so those movies that they passed her by that because of the power of cinema and the, the, uh, the priority given to these comic book, comic book movies now, uh, you know, this is something that I can sit around the dinner table as we did for kind of our final holiday vacation dinner before my son went back to college. And everyone is talking about Spider-Man No Way Home and, 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 and what they enjoyed and what's coming next. And I mean, it's it's rare nowadays that, 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 that something is enjoyed by my entire family. Uh, you know, one of my kids watches Succession along with, not along with, but he watches it just as my wife and I do. Um, and, and then, and then, you know, one of my sons likes the same sports teams that I do like, like in everything else, we're, we're kind of segmented. Uh, but, but then something like a Spider-Man No Way Home pulls us all together. And I'm still just in awe of this and especially just how completely knee deep in geekery, uh, Spider-Man No Way Home was, um, I mean the, an absolute, uh, just comic book. Uh, uh, really comic book faithful down to the every nerdy little detail and nuance 
and it just was given this giant, glorious 200 plus million dollar budget, right? Uh, to bring it to life in front of all of our eyes. And it has resulted now in every day we are reading how it's lapping movie after movie after movie. I think it today I read, uh, uh, you know, somebody a prognostication that it it's going to pass Endgame, which is just wasn't, I think, something anyone considered uh, four months ago, that, that this movie would challenge the biggest comic book movie of all time, right? Well, this pivots to me to the next movie that's going to gather us all together. And I, and I say this because, of course, I went and saw Spider-Man No Way Home with my wife uh, the weekend it came out, and it was a Sunday evening. And as we were walking out of the theater, a family that we knew from from uh, both my kids' schools and, and, and church uh, called out to us and said, Hey, Liefeld! And we went over and spoke to them, and they have a daughter who is uh, my daughter's age. So it's the husband, the wife, and their daughter, and they're all talking about all the stuff that they loved about Spider-Man No Way Home. They are not comic book fans per se, but they love cinema. Um, so much so that when we, uh, a couple of years, I guess a year and a half ago, when the pandemic was starting to wane in that first uh, summer of, of 2020, uh, there was a limited release for, um, for, for, for the brand new Christopher Nolan film, Tenet. And yet in, in, in Southern California, only San Diego was releasing it because they had the, um, the least amount of COVID at the time. And, and so, so they met the criteria and were letting people watch and there was an IMAX screen. So my, my wife and I jumped in the car and right before we, we, we went, we informed my daughter who was the only person home that day, it was a Saturday that we're going to drive to San Diego and see a three o'clock, you know, showing of tenant. Well, my daughter said, I'll, I'll jump in with you guys. Sounds good. So she jumped in. We then, I think, said that we went and saw it on social media. And this family that I see outside of Spider-Man No Way Home, they, they had, I remember the wife called my, my the, the wife, the mom, called my wife, Joy, and, and was like, hey, where'd you guys see that again? We want to go see Tenet. So, so these, these are cinema, cinematic, you know, fans, because I think, you know, if you're going to drive almost three hours to go see a movie in a pandemic, uh, I think you're a cinema fan. Um and, uh, and and so so they were talking and and they brought up that they had seen a movie sim- that, that's coming out that's similar to Spider-Man No Way Home and it was the new Batman movie with Michael Keaton and I said no it's a Flash movie that features Michael Keaton and it's Flashpoint and I gave him a little you know and I said it's going to be a lot like this with the Ben Affleck with the Michael Keaton and of course you know, the dad's like, oh, so they're, they're copying Marvel. And I'm like, ah, it's not, not really, this already kind of existed. And this gets back, you know, you longtime listeners of Rob's observations. Now we're back into the echoes, you know, what came first, the chicken or the egg. We are in multiverses. Who did it first? Um, who, who, you know, who did it most to, who, who's mostly now identified and, and, and really in a, you know, uh, a, 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 a business where when you get there first, in the mainstream, they identify you as the originator, uh, you know, that, 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 that Marvel with, you know, and, and Sony in, into the Spider-Verse a couple years back. That, 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 that is a lot of people's first encounter. People who don't watch Star Trek and, and, and Mirror Mirror and see Good Kirk, Bad Kirk and, and, and Doppelgangers. That for a lot of people, that was their first, you know, interaction with a, hey, there's more than one Spider-Man and what do you mean Peter Parker's middle-aged and out of shape and what do you mean there's another Spider-Man and another Spider-Verse and and now obviously with the the, the, the Tobey Maguire, Andrew Gar- Garfield, Tom Holland iteration, it's only going to bring up natural 
uh, uh, comparisons to what we just saw in, in regards to that that's going to have a, a Michael Keaton, a Ben Affleck, and who knows what other surprises are in store. I've been reading all sorts of just crazy stuff about that movie. It'll be exciting because, you know, I think everyone's in for this alternate universe stuff. We, we, we've struck really the 20-year mark in these superhero movies where, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm scrolling through my, my Twitter feed and someone's like, hey, look, I got my, this is my, um, you know, uh, notebook, my, my folder that I had when I was in fifth grade. And it's the first Tobey Maguire, you know, Spider-Man it, it, it movie. And it's, 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 uh, it's, it, it's got that image on the, the notebook. And, and for myself, I was writing a bunch of notes and short stories in the summer of 1999 and all of the Phantom Menace, uh, uh, stationery and notebooks that they put out. So I'm like, Hey, look at all these Phantom Menace notebooks where I wrote story notes and ideas and concepts. And I mean, and that is now 23 years ago. So uh, the culture is is really at this certain point, 20 years, uh, having digested plus 50 comic book movies between Marvel and DC alone, that they are ready now for all these pivots that we are so used to in the comic book industry. But the the, the real point of all this, and this gets kind of back to the tenet of all of it all, and my daughter and her friends and their fascination with Tom Holland, there are three... Uh, uh, actors that that my daughter, who is she's crucial to the box office, right? I mean, she goes with her six girlfriends. They all buy a legit ticket to go see it on a big screen in the local cinema house. That's that's some serious coin going towards Spider-Man: No Way Home, and that's happening all across the nation, all across the world, because Tom Holland has a giant female fan base, as does Robert Pattinson, as does Timothy Chalamet. So right before the New Year, in between Christmas and New Year's we got this new trailer for the Robert Pattinson Batman. And I'm going to tell you right now, I have been absolutely looking forward to this, mainly because uh, the cinematic uh, contributions of the director, Matt Reeves. I am a huge fan of Matt Reeves' work. I've seen all of his movies, uh, and, 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 and I enjoy his, his work very much. And I think he is at this point in his, in his career where he is making a reach for a Christopher Nolan a uh, 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 style, you know, um, impact on the culture, um, uh, the, like like Denis, uh, who, who directed Dune. These guys are now seen as kind of the, the new modern cinematic masters, and I think Matt Reeves can definitely cue it up and 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 get to that place. And he's going to use this movie uh, just like Nolan did. Nolan was a big deal. Nolan had given us some brilliant films. But it was the Batman films that put him in the other echelon. And trust me, I had a friend, a really good friend of mine, who I sometimes even listens to this show and and, and he, he knows of who he is when I speak of him. But uh, he was at Warner Brothers for, for quite some time before he became kind of a big um, entertainment guy at Apple. And along the way, he had several different stops in the entertainment industry, always learning, advancing. And uh, he was at Warner Brothers when they made Inception, and he, you know, said it's it's these Batman films that gave Warner Brothers the faith to give Christopher Nolan the the budget for something non known IP, nothing that was known, um, you know, you know, something as trippy and out there and sci fi as Inception, and and that's what you know these filmmakers want is is carte blanche, and they want big, uh, big big checks to pull off their giant. Visions, Dunkirk, you know, Nolan does a one for you, one for me, kind of the way Spielberg laid it out. He did, he made just Jurassic Park for 
the commercial audiences. He made, you know, uh, stuff like Saving Private Ryan and Schindler's List for the more critical, you know, uh, elements that he wanted to serve. Something that maybe would, you know, there's a world where nobody goes to see Schindler's List. It just isn't the world we lived in because obviously everybody went and saw Schindler's List and it got him all of his awards and his acclaim. But so with Matt Reeves, he is taking on Batman, which is Again, the Batman world is never one that I have been terribly fond of in the comic books. Uh, I have gone on and on and on and on with you about a singular talent named Frank Miller and how he um, really impacted the culture and has. And you're going to hear high praise for him shortly that is not just me praising him. Again, when I encountered Frank Miller, I am, uh, you know, I'm 12. I'm 12 when in, in, in when he starts doing his work on Daredevil and he shifted the trajectory of that of that comic so drastically. And I've talked to that in my, I think it's the second or third podcast I ever recorded called 70s Visionaries. Because I, t- I kid you not, it was just a more advanced approach to storytelling than anything that we had experienced at the time. So then he does his time on Daredevil and then he advances, <clears throat> does some experimental work over at DC called Ronin. And then he does Dark Knight, which is the huge, absolutely groundbreaking transformation of Batman. Now, I did a few podcasts back. I did a, a show called The Numbers. And it was fascinating to me because we looked at the numbers of 1978, I think 1982 and 1985, everything in between. And we gauged trends and how things went up and how things went down and how Fantastic Four was once a really powerful brand family for Marvel. And Spider-Man was the most, but then they got replaced by X-Men and Daredevil. And that was on the back. The Daredevil stuff was on the back of Frank Miller and transforming it. But in the same way, I'm going to do a follow-up to the numbers very soon because I've got the data that proves to you how bad off Batman was doing prior to Frank's reimagining of it. I'm going to read directly again. I think I've done it once before, but it's time to do it again. The Stephen King uh, two-page commentary. I think it's Detective Comics 600. Don't quote me on that. I've got to, I don't have it in front of me. But Stephen King did a whole diatribe, a, a multi-paged kind of, not an editorial, but a commentary on how he was fearful based on public interest in Batman, uh, it, which was waning. And, I, and I've covered how they were taking titles away from Batman. He went from four titles to two titles. That happens because they're not connecting as much. They're not selling as much. And when Frank came out with Dark Knight, it, it, it crushed everything. But... Of course, Robert Pattinson's Batman doesn't look like Dark Knight. And 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 at first glance, on two trailers that we've seen, I think the first one it was at the very first Fandom, and then the, the new trailer that came out recently uh, really took me to the Jeff Loeb, Tim Sale place of the Batman Long Halloween, Batman Dark Victory, the two giant works that Jeff Loeb and Tim Sale produced at the end, kind of tail end of the 90s that were giant hits when when once again in the 90s, Batman was falling out of favor. Um, they had broken his back. They had introduced Azrael. They did all these things to kind of stir your interest. But for a tried and true, dedicated kind of uh, and, and guaranteed quality uh, sales appeal, Batman the Long Halloween just knocked people off their socks. And it took place in the realm and, and Jeff will tell you this, and he said in multiple interviews, Jeff Loeb, the, the writer, and Tim Sale, the artist, said that the Long Halloween and Dark Victory were extensions of Batman Year One. What the hell? 
is Batman Year One. If you are not of that age, what is Batman Year One? I don't mention it a lot, but that doesn't mean I didn't love it because I did love it. And I actually worked at a comic store during the time that it was coming out. But immediately upon seeing the latest trailer from Matt Reeves, The Batman with Robert Pattinson, uh, I retreated into my uh, special hardcover, the, 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 the deluxe absolute editions, they call them, oversized printings of Long Halloween and Dark Victory. And I was pouring through them and I was reminded that, come on, these are extensions of... Uh, of, of, of Batman, you know, Batman Year One. Batman Year One is an epic work that came out at the same time as Dark Knight, written by Frank Miller, but he he didn't draw it. That was drawn by a brilliant visual... I mean, literally, uh, he was here only a brief time. He moved on, went to teach, you know, sequential art, storytelling, life drawing. His name is David Mazzuchelli. He worked with Frank on Daredevil, and then they pivoted and followed up that seminal work because Frank came back for kind of his three, his his third tour of duty on, on Daredevil. His first tour of duty was the critical acclaimed Electra, the hand stick, a lot of the stuff that they covered in the Netflix season one and two, the transformation of Kingpin into Marvel's most fearsome bad guy. And then he decided to do some sequels and carry on some of that, and he just wrote it and provided layouts and breakdowns, and Klaus Janssen, who had been inking him, became the full-time artist. And I like that stuff, but not as much as I love the hardcore, dedicated Frank. Then he came back a couple years later, after a couple-year break, and he redid Daredevil with David Mazzuchelli and gave us Daredevil Born Again, which was amazing. Uh, just when you thought he couldn't reignite Daredevil again because Daredevil had sunk again after he left, in like 83, 84, Daredevil went to the toilet again. But late 85, he comes back. He comes back after being on two years. And he comes back with David Mazzuchelli, this guy you never heard before. And 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 fans didn't even know how to pronounce his name. I was working in a comic store at this time. David M-A-Z-Z-U-C-C-H-E-L-L-I. People didn't... Mazzuchelli? Okay, David Mazzuchelli. Brilliant. Brilliant. He tapped into something extremely special. Uh on Born Again, but they, they they didn't hold up. They then go and do this four-issue, outstanding, amazing, seminal, reimagining of uh, of Batman. But I'm, I'm, I'm going to give you uh, kind of a preface of what they were doing here by reading what the editor at the time, Denny O'Neill. Denny is somebody that people go, oh, well, Frank Miller was, was you know, influenced by Denny O'Neill. Denny wrote some great stuff with Neil Adams. And, and that's really the first time Daredevil, I mean, uh, D Batman was depicted in the way that he was. And Frank only um, picked up on that wrong, the work Denny O'Neill and Neil Adams did and everything Den Denny did was, was fantastic. But it was not anywhere near approaching the stuff that Frank would do. And, and don't believe me, believe Denny O'Neill, who in March of 1988 wrote this foreword to uh, Batman Year One. So I'm going to tell you about this forward first before I go further. In 1986, the editorial board of DC Comics decided that their heroes, some of whom were nearly a half century old, had become dated. A massive revamping was clearly in order, and the place to begin with was the company's three most popular and enduring characters, Superman, Wonder Woman, and Batman. The writers and artists assigned to the task had quick and clear ideas of how to update Superman and Wonder Woman, but Batman was a problem. He was fine just as he was. 
The origin that Bob Kane and Bill Finger had created in 1939 was a perfect explanation of how and why the Batman came to be, why he continued his obsessive crusade, and perhaps more importantly, it mirrored the, the fears, frustrations, and hopes of a readership coping with the realities of 20th century urban life. So DC's editors decided Batman's origin should not be changed, but it might be improved upon. It could be given depth, complexity, a wider context. Details could be added to give it focus and credibility. Bruce Wayne's struggles to become the thing he was trying to create, the Batman, could be dramatized. And finally, all the storytelling techniques that comic book creators had developed in those 50 years could be applied to realize the potential of the basic material. The question then was, who could do all this? Frank Miller volunteered. Frank Miller was generally acknowledged to be the best writer-artist to enter comics since the early 60s. Indeed, some said he was the best ever. When he was a beginner at DC's chief competitor, Marvel Comics, he had recreated a minor character called Daredevil and produced a series that was at once faithful to established continuity, dazzlingly innovative, and immensely popular. At DC Comics, he had done an extended graphic novel titled Ronin, which incorporated Japanese and European influences into a personal vision of a horrific future. And more recently, he collaborated with Lynn Varley and Klaus Janssen to produce the phenomenal Batman The Dark Knight Returns, which portrayed an aging Batman driven out of retirement by a society run amok and his own inner needs. Having done Batman's Omega, Miller was willing and anxious to do Batman's Alpha. But he chose to abandon his role as artist. He wanted to function as writer only on this project. His collaborator collaborator of choice was David Mazzuchelli. David Mazzuchelli, though only a few years into the field, had already acquired a reputation as one of comics' extraordinary talents. He had an absolute command of composition, a powerful sense of visual drama, and an unerring eye for the telling details that bring a scene to life. Miller and Mazzuchelli complemented each other perfectly. With the help of colorist Richmond Lewis, herself a gifted artist, and letterer Todd Klein, they produced the definitive version of one of popular culture's enduring stories. Once again, they produced the definitive version of one of pop culture's enduring stories. Originally published in four parts, Batman Year One is presented here as the organic whole that Frank Miller and David Mazzuchelli meant it to be a graphic novel that combines a familiar urban myth with an unmistakably modern sensibility and brilliant storytelling. How brilliant is that? Denny O'Neill, what an incredible scribe. Um, the back of this book says, in 1986, Frank Miller and David Mazzuchelli produced the groundbreaking reinterpretation of the origin of Batman, who he is, and how he came to be. Written shortly after The Dark Knight Returns, Miller's dystopian fable of Batman's final days. Year one sets the stage for a new vision of this legendary character. The edition includes the complete graphic novel, a new introduction by Frank Miller, and a new illustrated afterward by artist David Mazzuchelli. Completing this collection are over 40 pages of never-before-seen developmental materials such as character and layout sketches, sample script pages, sketches, and more that provide a glimpse into the making of this contemporary classic. So, uh, Danny O'Neill, who is famous as one of the... uh, kind of modern pioneers of Batman. You, I've read to you what he said about Frank's work um, and, and, and the work that, you, that, 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 that Batman Year One represents. I'm going to jump ahead and read what Frank re- reads in his closing because they say on the back that it's introduced, but it's, it's Frank has the afterword. 
It says, it says, a shadow fell across me. That's the title of the afterword. If your only memory of Batman is that of Adam West and Burt Ward exchanging camped out quips while clobbering, slumming guest stars Vincent Price and Cesar Romero, I hope this book will come as a surprise to you. For me, Batman was never funny. I was eight years old when I picked up an 80-page annual from the shelf of a local supermarket. The artwork on one story looked great and scary. Gotham City was cold shafts of concrete lit by cold moonlight, windswept and bottomless, fading to a cloud bank of city lights, a wet white mist miles below me. The street sounds were a soft, sad roar, unbroken and unchanging. Then somewhere, somewhere in the stone's rat maze down there, tiny but unmuffled, a pane glass window shattered. The sound was almost pretty, like chimes. The chimes became a single ringing bell, a burglar alarm, the old kind. A Thompson machine gun spat at the bell. A madman laughed wildly, maliciously. That laughter echoed forever. A shadow fell across me, far from above. Wings flapped close by and silent. Glistening wet against the blackened sky, a monster, a giant, a winged gargoyle, hunched forward, pausing at the building's ledge. He cocked its head. Following the laugh's last seconds, moonlight glanced across its back across its massive shoulders, down its craned, cabled neck, across its skull, striking a triangle at one point, pointed bat's ear. It rose into space, its wings spread wide open, then fell its wings, now a fluttering cape, wrapped tightly about the body of a man. It fell past me, its shadow sliding across walls, growing to swallow whole buildings, lit by the clouds below. The shadow faded into the clouds, and it was gone. The 80-page giant, comic cost only 25 cents but i bought it anyway frank miller los angeles 1988 he had a romantic relationship with this material with this character and in the pages of batman year one all you have to remember and this was the big selling point as it was being released it depicted a brand new more so than a young young bruce wayne this is young bruce wayne batman year one he is finding his way he is becoming batman he is meeting commissioner gordon he is training himself uh on on the uh, grounds of wayne manor uh kicking trees branches punching rocks stones he's building up his resistance to pain we meet selena kyle we meet catwoman for the first time and in her apartment, it's covered in cats. And she is drawn exactly in this 1986 depiction by David Mazzuccelli. She looks exactly like Zoe Kravitz. She, when I saw this, I was like, wow, how did I dial in so quickly to the Loeb sales stuff? Because I myself have forgotten the magnitude of this work. This work is amazing. And, uh, in her leather cat suit. This is the first time the the, 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 the the Catwoman that would eventually be depicted on the Batman animated series by Bruce Timm starts here. This is the DNA. This is the roots. This is the sourcing. You guys, you know, if you've listened to this show, I love sourcing. I love getting to the source. We're going to do a lot more with sourcing later on in this, this episode. But the first appearance of Zoe Kravitz's depiction of Selena Kyle is in these pages. It is in this seminal work. And later on, as Bruce Wayne meets, introduces, and dances, kind of has starts his romantic fling um, with with uh, with the the you know Selena, who would become Catwoman, and her apartment littered, covered in cats. Um, again, this is this is where this all starts. The the original uh, link with with Bruce Wayne 
who will be depicted obviously by Robert Pattinson and, and, and Commissioner Gordon. But uh, yeah, Selena is on a, a bed and she is covered in cats. And, and this is the first time we had seen this imagery. Remember what Denny O'Neill says in the beginning is Batman's origin was perfect. They didn't want to change anything. But there was room to be given to, for it to be given depth, complexity, and a wider context. A wider, wider context. And that's where Frank and Mazzuccelli just go to town. David Mazzuccelli is an amazing artist. He has... Oh, he's so ridiculously gifted. It, it it never surprised me that he just left comics behind. He mastered it early within the first few few years between Daredevil, Born Again, and this, which was again a span of three to four years. He just maxed out. Um, but yeah, every issue I'm looking at depicts Selena Kyle, and they could be shots. You could tell me that someone um, was given the frames from. Robert Pattinson's The Batman, and that these are frames that an artist uh, drew from depictions of Zoe Kravitz. So, um, all I'm saying here, and the reason I brought it up is uh, setting setting the tone. Batman is evergreen for 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 DC Comics. He is their Spider Man. He is their go to. Well, whether it's Affleck, whether it's uh, Christian Bale, whether it's uh, George Clooney, Val Kilmer, Michael Keaton, you name it. Batman is the gift that keeps on coming. I mean, in, in, in my, uh, in the, in the last, you know, what is it? 30 plus years, 89, 99, 2009, 20. Okay. So plus 30 years, we've seen Jack Nicholson as the Joker. We've seen Heath Ledger. We've seen Joaquin Phoenix and they've all given these bravura, uh, bravura per performances of, of, of Joker and, uh, People, I mean, that Joker movie, standalone, Joaquin Phoenix, this kind of throwback to the 70s, Mean Street, Scorsese-style taxi driver film, made a billion dollars. That, that um, The studio knows that that is their most evergreen IP, while they can't quite figure out how to satisfy with Superman, Batman, it does not matter. Whatever they do, people show up, especially cinematically, because of the romance that, again, um, the dads of my friends and I, and I am not a young man, obviously, but they were, uh, the Adam West Batman that Frank Miller mentions in his intro is the one that they came to know him by. And that's where he went full, full on pop culture, you know, mainstream. And when I, when I mentioned that new edition of the numbers, you're going to see the wild impact that TV show had Batman's numbers just were ridiculously amplified. But eventually, like I said, Prior to Dark Knight, people got tired. Batman had been worn out, maybe overused by DC Comics. But really, from the late 70s through the mid-80s, it was a surge for Superman, who got three motion pictures at that time, three big-budget motion pictures before Batman even got one. But as you look at Robert Pattinson's uh, Batman, and you see that trailer, because I saw people online on social media afterwards going, oh, man, this is reflecting, like, the most recent, like comic books that came out two or three years ago. And I'm like, you know, this generation doesn't like to source. I don't know if they're lazy. I, I don't know if they don't know which, which direction to be pointed in. It's weird to me that they, that there was something as advanced as a Google search engine. You couldn't go further into that and, and, and figure that stuff out. But um, that, what you're seeing on screen, those images that Matt Reeves is taking are 100% directly from Frank Miller, David Mazzuccelli's Batman Year One, and then the pivot into the Tim Loeb, uh, uh, sorry, Jeff Loeb, Tim Sale stuff, uh, Falcone, all that stuff. That that all has its roots right here. 
and uh, and and I really believe uh, what when you see it come to life, the 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 Batman Year One stuff, which again the Long Halloween and Dark Victory that was a big deal. Jeff Loeb got DC's blessing to continue on from this dedicated vision and world that again Danny O'Neill said that, that they they charged Frank specifically with reconstructing and expanding and giving more depth. Loeb and Sale were able to go in there with a very similar approach. Tim Tim Sale's work fall fell somewhere bef- in between kind of, you know, the late 80s, early 90s, Frank Miller line line art depiction. Tim's his own brand of exceptional storyteller, but it definitely fit in the David Mazzuchelli, Frank Miller, Alex Toth, which both of them dance between. And uh, and so when you see that Robert Pattinson stuff, I, I, I it's, it's going to be a big movie. It will it will be hard pressed not to be a gigantic hit and be kind of the new um, hot property that Warner Brothers so so desperately needs. I think Flashpoint, all that stuff is going to be fun. But I mean, when you think to the point that by midway 2022, we will have had three Batman cinematically, the Keaton and Affleck uh, tag team. And it doesn't matter if Affleck's exiting, but the bottom line is you're going to see, again, two cinematic versions of Batman, which follow this Robert Pattinson. And I think people are going to eat it up. They're absolutely going to eat it up. But Pattinson and Matt Reeves, I think they are going to meet the moment. This is, I don't know how this isn't a billion dollars. Uh, Zoe Kravitz, the whole, the entire cast, everybody they've gotten on board. The murder mystery, the Dave Fincher-esque look that Matt Reeves, that's for a lack of better terms, I'm I'm pulling what I believe is some of the greatest, you know, visions by David Fincher. I, I see that in the Batman from what I've seen already. I've seen I've seen glimpses of of of, of seven and I've seen uh you know glimpses of mind hunters and, and, and just all, all of the great um the, the stuff uh, uh uh you know the 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 Zodiac movie that Fincher did. It, it all seems like it's alive and well in this Robert Pattinson universe. So, so anyway, as, as the, as the year was winding down this hit, I saw people who are just throwing all manner of different references. And I'm like, what are you doing? This is not adapting anything from the last decade. It's adapting this seminal work that everybody minds. I don't mention it enough because I'm so overwhelmed by dark Knight. that, that, that electrified me. This Batman year one is, um, just critically acclaimed it's elegant it's beautiful uh it's 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 fantastic it is it is you know deserves every accolade but dark knight is a little more um visceral it gets a bigger visceral reaction out of me and it always will cuz frank's art and line art to me are more you know visceral and exciting well the other part of today's podcast is going to discuss with you, especially uh, given that this is the 30th anniversary of Image Comics, as we pivot away to from Robert Pattinson's Batman, Batman Year One, Long Halloween, Dark Victory, all of those influences that we're going to be seeing as Batman overtakes the cinemas. I pivot away back to um, really a, a comic company I hope you've heard of, uh, and, and, and works by by incredible artists I hope you've heard of. But if not, we're going to discuss it today and maybe turn you on to something that, 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 that you weren't aware was as influential on all of us and get a little kind of secret history while you're at it. But um, the, 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 with the 30th anniversary of Image Comics 
upon us in Image Comics being the uh, third largest publisher of comic books and, and really has held that for 30 years, has, has been right there in, in that equation. We, we, we launched and we wedged right in there under the two majors. Occasionally we jumped uh, DCN, we're the number two publisher on a couple occasions, but uh, steadfastly um, leaping over all of the competition at the time and staying, staying that way for years and years and years now. You should know that there was a comic company that came before when I was a kid uh, that I encountered when I was uh, 13 years old that was a profound uh, influence, not just on me, but I think all my peer group. And it's a comic company that launched with a huge splash called Pacific Comics. Let me tell you uh, the, the time that Pacific Comics uh, came to be. I'm going to paint for you a picture. I'm going I'm to tell you what Robbie Liefeld's uh, comic book outlook at the time was. By 1981, this is a really interesting period, because by 1981, we have, especially the end of 81, uh, Frank Miller's Daredevil has, for all intents and purposes, the curtain has dropped on its amazing first act, Electra, the hand, all the stuff I've already mentioned to you earlier, Electra, Stick, the hand, um, the transformation of the kingpin, all that. Frank Miller has brought it. He has taken Daredevil from the you know, bi-monthly, nearly canceled status to best-selling comic book, hottest comic book, comic book that everyone can't stop talking about. Um, he is only going to continue to basically write that book and step back a little and give the finish, the, the entire art to his inker, who is extremely capable um, and, and a brilliant artist in his own right. He just isn't Frank. But Frank is going to take a step back and only write the book from this point forward. He's already shocked us, given us this incredible depiction of Bullseye, the fate of Bullseye, the fate of Electra, the threat of the hand. Just mind-blowing. The, the One of the greatest, if not the greatest, comic book saga I'd ever read, especially given its street smarts, its street level kind of uh, application. This wasn't giant cosmic threats. This was crime lords and ninjas and oh, just riveting. But Frank was winding down. He was pivoting. My favorite comic book of all space and time was um, in kind of a transition phase. John Byrne and Terry Austin had left X-Men after their transformational run. Again, I have talked about this run so many times. And when you go, why? Why do you talk about it? Well, why does the X-Men animated cartoon base so much of what they did on those stories? Why do? Why is every movie that we've gotten, Days of Future Past, Phoenix, um, the first two X-Men films, they're all based on this work by John Byrne, Terry Austin, done in conjunction with Chris Claremont. But their artwork was such a driving force. Again, in the modern day right now, as we speak in 2022, a John Byrne page from that run will run you somewhere between $70,000 and $100,000. It's, it's the, 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 the desire by the kids who grew up with that work to own a piece of that work is, um, has hit an all-time high. Pages that used to be $30,000, which is, come on, that's a car, are now $125,000. Um, covers are above $400,000, some pushing to the seven figures. I know for a fact, uh, a, a giant art dealer that made an offer for a cover in this in seven figures and was turned down. So th this was precious material, inspirational material, uh, the excitement of our youth. It had left. John Byrne had left. Terry Austin left. The art team was left. The X-Men was going along very well. 
uh, Dave Cockrum, who had launched the, the, the new age of the X-Men, giving us Colossus, Banshee, Storm, Wolverine on the team, everybody, all, all that. He had returned to the book. But um, with all due respect to Dave Cockrum, as much as I love his work, it was not that John Byrne, Terry Austin era. Uh, the one thing that was really exciting me was the George Perez, Marv Wolfman, uh, Teen Titans over at DC Comics. DC Comics had had some Marvel talent migrated over and uh, were really grabbing a big, big giant piece of the limelight and, and grabbing a lot of excitement from the fans. George was doing six covers a month uh, at DC Comics, really putting that style that we had associated with Marvel so much where, where George kind of really became a, a powerhouse. But Daredevil and X-Men were, were transitioning, so the two most popular runs on comics had wound down, and there was a shift in in attention, and it corresponded with the rise of the direct market. The direct market, when I say that term, are comic book stores. Comic book stores that did not deal with returns. If they bought it, they owned it. Not like the spinner racks of my youth, the liquor store, the 7-Eleven. I've told you all they had to do was tear off a cover. If they had too much, if they had five copies left over, and do five copies of Superman, five copies of Spider-Man, five copies of Batman, it adds up, send it back to the publisher to get credit on the next run of books. It was a way to keep this line of credit rolling, to pay less for all the new stuff. Returnability was an issue in that it kept, you know, the book companies from realizing all of their profits. So there's a business to this. But given the conditions of what I'm telling you, the two, my two favorite runs in comics were winding down. I was desperate to feel, to fill that, to fill that niche, that that niche, that need, that hit, that dopamine for for comic books that excited me. I was looking for anything new. Comic book stores were a new thing to me. I had obviously encountered in that time ElfQuest, which was a self-published independent comic book published by a, a husband and wife named Richard and Wendy Peeney. So that, that was out there. Cerebus was out there. Uh, by Dave Sim, this this kind of fantasy uh, story about this aardvark. There were definitely independent comic books that were out there. But there was not, to my knowledge, to my young eyes, an independent comic book company that would demand my attention, not in the way that this splash from this company called Pacific Comics would give me. Pacific Comics bought these ads in the comic fanzines of the time that were starting up. Comics Journal, amazing Heroes, the the newspaper, comic book buyer's guide, I mentioned it a couple times. Captain Victory. Captain Victory and the Galactic Rangers. What? And it's drawn by, written and drawn by Jack the King Kirby. What in the hell are you even talking about? What is Pacific Comics? I'd see these ads. I'd see the hope that these ads represented. Jack Kirby had done Fantastic Four, Thor, Avengers, X-Men, you name it, Iron Man, Captain America, created Captain America alongside Joe Simon, had entertained the masses, created, co-created, whatever, Silver Surfer, you know, Inhumans, Galactus, on his epic 101-issue Fantastic Four run, had just tremendous impact on building the Marvel Universe that you know and love. Um, and after a falling out with Stan Lee, moved to DC Comics where he launched the New Gods Forever People, Dark Side, Mr. Miracle, the Jimmy Olsen stuff, OMAC, the Demon, 
Commandy, this amazing run over at DC. Did the books all sell the way that maybe his stuff at Marvel did? No, but it, it is, over time that stuff has grown like like skyscraper level uh, heights of respect that many of the books were seen as before their time. Well, in 1976, he comes back. 1975, he comes back to Marvel after a five-year stint with DC Comics, and he is rewarded with given he's given the reins of Captain America at the most patriotic time in this country. Uh, people who are alive at the time, the bicentennial 1976, you know, um, uh, uh, was a big deal. 1976, coins, stamps, posters. Jack took over Captain America and took him to all new levels of excitement. Powering him month in, month out. He did uh, Machine Man. He did Black Panther uh, monthly. He did covers for almost every Marvel comic that was coming out at the time. Jack had this one giant, massive flex that lasted back at Marvel from 1975 to 1978. Covers to the Fantastic Four. Covers to the Avengers. Um, covers to the Defenders. To Iron Man. I mean, they just they they unleashed him. And you gotta you gotta understand. I mean, at this time. Jack is uh, is not a young guy, but he is doing this ferocious amount of work, um, and uh, and so he he kept it up at this advanced age, just crushing it, and uh, retired from comics altogether after this giant last flex in 1978, where he then pivoted to. Um, to to uh, do animation full time, he became a powerhouse behind the scenes in 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 animation, and uh, you know so, so so Jack had really stepped away from the daily um, you know aspects of this, and and Jack is is like literally in his late sixties, absolutely just tearing it up when he is pr- pr- producing. All of this um, crazy work for for Marvel seventy five, um, nineteen seventy five to nineteen seventy eight. Jack died in nineteen ninety four of seven at the age of seventy six and eighty four. Obviously, is sixty six. You know, um, in, in in so, so in nineteen eighty one, this cat is between sixty one sixty two years old as he launches this. Captain Victory and the Galactic Rangers. I see these ads. I see this blonde Thor-looking guy in kind of this cool kind of space version of what maybe you'd think Captain America would look like if he was in space. It's red. It's 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 blue. It's it's yellow. Um, and it's coming from Pacific Comics. Who is Pacific Comics? I had no idea, but they had a cool logo. They had a cool name, and they were launching with a comic book from the creator of. All of your favorite comics. I mean, like I said, Fantastic Four, Avengers, Thor, Iron Man, X-Men. I mean, we could stop there and it's the best career ever, right? Iron Man, Captain America, Black Panther, Inhumans, Galactus, Silver Surfer, The New Gods, Forever People, Commandy, all the titles I've just listed. Jack is this never-ending wellspring of ideas and concepts and they were exciting. The cover to Captain Victory number one by Pacific Comics. Captain Victory is holding two giant almost untenable-looking guns. I mean, they are almost as big as he is. One is bigger than he is. 
And it says, new, exciting, original, Pacific Comics, in defense of our galaxy, Captain Victory and the Galactic Rangers, forces from the Star Worlds clash on Earth. So, uh, Pacific Comics. What's Pacific Comics? I'll give you a little background on Pacific Comics. Because without Pacific Comics, I don't believe there ever is an image comics. This is not just where Jack comes from. It's so much more. But um, I'm going to tell you right now that... uh, I'm going to read to you from something posted a couple years back by the man who started Pacific Comics. He wrote a, uh, his name is Bill Shanus. His brother, Steve Shanus, they owned a chain of comic book stores called Pacific Comics down in San Diego. Makes sense, right? Pacific Comics. Well, he wrote this uh, literally three years ago and posted it to Facebook. How does a brand new publisher attempt to compete with DC and Marvel. Again, this is the co-founder of Pacific Comics, Bill Shanus. In the late 1970s, both DC and Comics and Marvel Comics were offering 60% off retail cover price to distributors who purchased directly from them on a non-returnable basis. At that time, both companies published standard 32-page full-color comics with a cover price of 50 cents on each issue. So this is the late 70s, 77, 78, 79. And again, he's saying the direct market to help the comic book stores out Retailer, uh, both Marvel and DC, the two big dogs, were selling at 60% off. So 60% off, 50 cents in most cases. My older brother, Steve Shanus, and I, Bill Shanus, had four comic book specialty retail stores, a large mail order company, and a couple of small publishing companies, Shanus and Shanus, and our Pacific Comics division. We felt there was an opportunity to create a brand new business model within the comic book publishing industry but with DC and Marvel both having characters which were well-established for decades and had loyal consumers who were buying their entire lines. He then says, i.e., many Marvel comic collectors were often referred to as Marvel Zombies, something I told you guys about a couple podcasts back, as Marvel Zombies bought every single comic book Marvel put out, regardless of what the title was, theme and or creative team, and nothing else. The relative low cover price and small number of new monthly releases made it possible for fans and collectors to buy an entire line if they enjoyed the books and wanted to be completists. For our launch, we needed a creator who was a juggernaut, one which every collector and every comic book retailer would recognize, even if the characters involved would be entirely new to them. Pacific Comics launched with Jack the King Kirby and his new creation, a title called Captain Victory. Since we were going to launch our own 32-page full-color comic books with a dollar cover price, twice as much as DC or Marvel were currently pricing their new 32-page full-color comic books, we knew we would need to re we would need to incentivize the same distributors of DC and Marvel. We felt we'd have one change to get enough copies into our market into the marketplace. We'd have to make the deal points irresistible, so we announced a unique set of discounts in terms as we offered a sliding scale discount based on the total quality purchased on a per-issue basis. Our discount schedule was as follows. A thousand copies or more, you received $60,000. I mean, (laughs) what am I talking? 60% off cover. 5,000 copies or more, 65% off cover. 10,000 copies or more, 70% off cover. This is how they were going to get retailers and distributors to buy into their new brand. We originally thought a couple of the distributors would stretch to get to the 10,000 per issue level on at least the very few issues 
uh, at the start or um, or across all our first issues. And then their discount would drop to 65% or 60% respectfully, which was still 5% more at retail than DC or Marvel was offering at the 5,000 copy per issue commitment. At that time, the distributors were also offering a sliding scale discount to comic book stores based on the total purchases made on a pre-order monthly basis. Small accounts would get books at 40% the cover price, while the largest accounts might get 55% off cover price. The average discount was probably around 50% off cover price. So that's what I'm going to use below to illustrate the Pacific Comics versus Marvel DC discount comparisons. Here's what the number ended up looking like. You know, um, a DC Comics, 50% profit, 20%, 20 cent profit, 25% profit across the 60% wholesale average grosses offered at DC and uh, and Marvel. At Pacific Comics, with their 70% off wholesale, uh, you know, retailers would uh, get a 30% profit and a 50% profit. So again, Bill and his brother are businessmen. They run retail, they run distribution. Their Pacific Comics label had just been doing portfolios, art portfolios. And their very first one was a title I have resisted doing an entire podcast on called Weird World, Warriors of the Shadow Realm, but we'll get back to that in another podcast. From a distributor perspective, the logistics and operations cost of soliciting, receiving, fulfilling, invoicing DC, Marvel, and Pacific were identical. As the comic books were the same size, page count, paper stock, price points. Plus, they were printed and delivered from the exact same printer. The fundamental difference was the distributor had the opportunity to earn four times more each time they sold a Pacific comic versus a DC comic book or a Marvel comic book. We also thought both distributors and comic book retailers would rally for a non-New York publishing company who was creator-friendly and who also had a background as an active comic book retailer themselves. We also offered a 2% net discount for payment made within 10 days. With the most important part of our publishing launch being Jack Kirby's return to comic books and choosing Pacific Comics for his creator-owned friendly agreement, plus an incredibly favorable pricing model, we felt we had the right ingredient to launch our new line of full-color comic books. What we didn't anticipate was that the instead of the one to two instead of one to two retailer distributors. What we didn't anticipate was that instead of one to two distributors ordering at the 10,000 per issue level, eight to nine distributors each ordered 10,000 copies or more of Captain Victory Number 1. We had conservatively forecast sales on Captain Victory Number 1 at 35,000 copies. When our total orders came in at over 130,000 copies, we were shocked in the very best of ways. I called each distributor to reconfirm their purchase order quantities. As at first, I thought many of the mid-sized and small distributors had put the wrong quantity down on their purchase orders. The quantities did not change. What followed, they got into business with more and more talent. Mike Grell, who I'm going to get into here in a minute, he had a book called Star Slayer. It launched at over 140000 for Pacific Comics. And then Neil Adams, baby, Neil Adams brought it. He did a book with Pacific Comics called Ms. Mystic Number no. 1 and in 1982 had orders of 200 and 25,000 copies. Pacific Comics launched a number of new and innovative promotional and marketing programs at the time of the launch of our full-color comic book line. I can outline those at another time. He wrote this, and uh, it was it was just terrific. Um, 
in outlining what he did from a business level to complement the talent that they were bringing to bear. I didn't know any of that. All I knew, so behind the scenes, they had made their product as exciting as possible because they were a new comic company. I'm looking for something new to fill my desire, to fill my desire. The X-Men wasn't catching my attention like it used to. Daredevil was not catching my attention. Titans was really the only thing that was really getting me juiced. Walt Simonson's amazing Thor run Impact Beta Ray Bill was still two years off. 1981, Captain Victory and the Galactic Rangers. The ads, the art, everything is spectacular. This is, I am telling you, some of Jack Kirby's best work of that era. Uh, I believe mid-70s, late-70s Jack is where he found his sweet spot. He knew exactly how to do Jack Kirby better than he had ever known how to do Jack Kirby. The mixture of big shots, double-page splashes, the character bits, the close-ups, the drama, the action, the insane um, imagery, whether it's technological, costumes, um, vehicles, environments. This is Jack at his all-time best. His best inker for me... Uh, was Mike Royer who inked him on the best of his 1970s stuff, whether it was at DC or Marvel. Mike Royer had just a great line. I got to meet Mike Royer at a comic convention here locally in Southern, Southern California a couple years back. I talked on and on and on. He is primarily known because of his Jack Kirby Association working and inking so much of Jack's work. He just had the most brilliant, beautiful, complimentary line. Jack loved him the most as well. He inks the first three and a half issues of Captain Victory. Steve Olaf, who I mentioned to you guys, pioneered the computer coloring that would just set image comics on its ear and create really the new standard for computer coloring that you are still enjoying to this day. Steve Olaf colored the first few issues of Captain Victory. Um, there's a nice, a, a really great bio of Jack Kirby on the inside front cover. Let me tell you something. Uh, other than a two-page ad for Pacific Comics uh, distribution in this comic. This is wall-to-wall. The back cover is by Jack. The inside back cover is an ad for Mike Grell's new book. Um, everything in here is comic book related. Comic book designs, comic book sketches. Um, uh, uh, and, and on the inside front cover is a Jack Kirby bio. Again, this is a full third. Jack did like a 30-page comic book here. So for your dollar, you're definitely getting that extra because Marvel Comics was putting out 22-page comics at that time. You were in a 32-page comic, but only 22 pages of it was content. This entire package is content. And that would be the same for Mike Grell's Star Slayer and the Neil Adams Ms. Mystic, which Neil Adams Ms. Mystic uh, was sporadic in its launch, but the impact of its actual debut issue was huge. And Star Slayer and Captain Victory went on for multiple issues. I think all total, um, and it was the whole idea was that this was a bi-monthly issue. Jack did this for two and a half years, 14 issues plus a special. Um, but let me let me, let me me delve into this first issue. So you got this brand new concept. And, and let me tell you something. Captain Victory is like uh, in Close Encounters, if the uh, s- uh, spaceship came down and kidnapped the kid, uh, the, Richard Dreyfus spends the whole movie with the mom or the two-thirds of the movie looking for the kid who gets kidnapped. Imagine Captain Victory, you know, taken to the stars, grown, you know, raised to eventually come back and save Earth. Invasion of the Body Snatchers um, 
where aliens are among us and they're shape-shifting and they're starting to look like us. Imagine that done by Jack Kirby. Uh, the alien, the bad aliens got here before, the good guys, the space rangers, the galactic rangers, and they've already infested Earth and are attempting to hollow it out and, and, and hive it. Uh, uh, Lightning Lady is the head of the hive. And they are, uh, when, what they show on page four of Jack's book what the hive does to a planet when it takes it over. And the planetary hive hollows out and destroys a planet from the inside out. And so the galactic rangers led by Captain Victory are coming to Earth to stop the um, inhabitants. They they encounter the, the American military, whom they have to overcome. Um, there's all manner of crazy, like video games were new at this time, but Jack Kirby has Captain Victory put on this gigantic um, helmet slash headgear apparatus which then allows him to control like imagine han and luke in the cockpit in star wars you know whisping around on their on their seats rotating you know target to target and firing jack is doing that through this helmet so he doesn't have to sit down through this helmet he's he's captain victory is operating all the big guns and weaponry on this ship as he battles back the hive as they try and keep the 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 galactic rangers from landing on earth again we meet uh lightning lady we meet the members of the hive we are in introduced to their big giant um mission to to destroy earth from the inside out they've been here for a while so when captain victory finally makes um contact at the end of the first issue he he encounters the american military who seek to thwart what's going on but um you know captain victory shows them his giant spaceship and, and basically outlines the mission to the sheriff and the military that they're here to help and that Earth is in terrible danger. The concept is immediately introduced. It is some of Jack's strongest, most powerful depiction. Jack, especially in 1985, he does superpowers. He does the toy line for DC Comics and the faces aren't as strong structurally. Everything's a little wobbly. That That is definitely the work of a late 60-year-old man almost entering his 70s and uh you know it's uh it, it it it's got more wear and tear this to me is jack's last stand jack will also follow captain victory up with a sh another superhero uh comic book for pacific comics called silver star the big deal uh that 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 um that pacific comics will tell you is that they made a creator owners that that, that when they approached jack they gave him creator ownership, and and I and uh, uh, I'll just read it to you in 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 again Bill Shana's own words that when they went to draw Jack out of retirement because he was doing animation for all the different animation houses, he was doing storyboards, he was doing character design, and they pay really well. A lot of people ask me, a lot of guys from Extreme Studios, my studio that I started when I started Image Comics, Jeff Matsuda, Sam Liu, Chap Yap. Uh, um, uh, so many of these guys, Stephen Platt, Dan Fraga, went behind the scenes. They went and do storyboards. They went into character design. They get paid very handsomely. It's a different level of design work and quality. Storyboards especially don't have to be anywhere near polished as much as final comic book art does. Uh, it's a more of a, a, a sketchy, um, not everything is the matte, paintings or the illustrations or the, the or the, that end Mandalorian and Boba Fett. Not everything in that realm is that finished or polished. A lot of it is, is, you know, very much 
uh, communicative illustrations showing you direction and 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 figure um, gestures, and it's not it's certainly not rendered uh, at, at, with any sort of regularity or or any consistency. That 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 a, a storyboard artist or a concept guy can go in and do that at certain points, but there's big fat paychecks greater than what is to be made drawing a comic book for doing that. And 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 Jack had found this back in the late '70s when he left Marvel Comics, and everybody in the animation world loved him. You think, I mean, everybody at every animation studio loved him and they hired him. And we're going to do a lot of stories about some of the most impactful animation that he did in, in upcoming podcasts because some of that stuff is still righteously amazing. But they had to go to him and, 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 and uh, convince him to come out of retirement to have their launch product. And again, once you get Jack Kirby coming out of retirement, everyone's going to follow. And they did. So, uh, Look, here's the deal. Uh, the the Shanus brothers wanted to get into publication. So in, in 1981, uh, they turned to Jack Kirby. Bill Shanus says, if you want to get people's attention with a new comic book, who better to do it with than the king of comics, Jack Kirby? We were already friends with Jack. We used to send him free copies of comics he'd drawn for other publishers because they never sent him any copies, any comps. So we went ahead and called him on the phone. Turned out to be such a great guy, completely accessible. We negotiated a whole de- a whole detailed publishing deal between the two of us. No middlemen whatsoever. The Shanuses asked Kirby, who had effectively quit comics in 1978, uh, for only the publishing rights to his material, assuring him that he could have full ownership and copyright of his characters. And if they would help him license characters over- overseas in other media, uh, that they would get a minor cut in that. Pacific Comics claims to have been the first company to pay royalties to Jack Kirby. Kirby provided Pacific Comics with Captain Victory and the Galactic Rangers, uh, published bi-monthly uh, from August 1981. Uh, the Shanuses anticipated sales of less than 30,000 copies, and the first issue sold over 120,000 copies. Kirby then published Silver Star through Pacific, and the brothers decided to start an entire line of colored mainstream comic books. Before long, Pacific attracted interest from other comic book professionals, including Mike Grell, uh, who had planned his Star, Stray- his Star Slayer comic to appear at DC. But after dropping it from the schedule, the Shanuses approached him about publishing it. Uh, another invitee was the aspiring artist Dave Stevens, who purchased comics from Pacific Comics, had met the brothers in San Diego. Star Slayer 2 came up short in pages, and they approached Dave Stevens about doing a story. He did it. It was called The Rocketeer. The rest is history. Yes, Pacific Comics is the place where The Rocketeer was originated. They had higher paper quality, higher ink quality, um, better color um, um, separations on their books. And uh, again, they expanded to an entire line of comics, and they... uh, they carried through till 1984 where they decided to stop um, publishing. And what they say is that they were making such great money off their comic books, but many of the terms, most of our here, a quote directly from Shanus himself, most of our comic books still made money hand over fist, but there was a huge problem in our distribution. We had extended too much credit to retailers who were not paying us on a timely basis. We were already working on a minuscule profit margin with these creators maybe 5 to 
We didn't push hard enough to get the money from the receivables of those who owed us hundreds of thousands of dollars. If you had to boil down the single biggest reason that we shut down Pacific Comics Publishing, it would be our poor cash management from the distribution side. But let me tell you, Pacific Comics, in the back of Captain Victory number one, first of all, you get all the cup, you get all these manner of sketches and uh, character like designs of what's to come, stuff that, and we love that stuff, right? Stuff that isn't yet in the comic, but we see here um, his intergalactic soldiers, royalty from the hive, worker bees, which look like humans. We get Officer Clavis. Uh, he has a guy called Alien Infantry that he la later goes on to call Orca. A guy named Egghead. He has all these different military insignias. He has all of the arsenal in 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 the that the Galactic Rangers use the the Baby H bazooka, the sun gun, um, the magnetic mind thrower. Thr thrower. He has a silicon non breather, a pioneer micro scout, an intergalactic mercenary, a humanoid infantry. He's Jack. Jack's brain is exploding. He really Captain Victory felt like a huge. Saturday morning cartoon show that never happened. But Captain Victory 2, 2, 3, they're, they're, they're beautiful. Again, Mike Royer on inks. Jack is just absolutely tearing through this, um, blowing my mind issue after issue after issue. But here's one of the cool things that you will love. The, the kind of the twist, because artists, again, we absolutely know what we're doing. I'm, I'm just flipping through Cap, um, Captain Victory 3 here, and just it, it's blowing my mind. Jack was a wily guy. My favorite issue of Captain Victory is issue 12. It is the second part of the origin of Captain Victory. I like it the most for the uh, mentor that he gave him briefly in this issue. He only appears for a handful of pages, but his name is Captain uh, Argus. Captain Argus Flame. I love his design. He looks like he walked out of Jack Kirby's Fourth World. The reason I bring up the fourth world is the beginning of this comic. Uh, young Captain Victory, as a child, is running. He is he has escaped execution. He is battling against uh, the soldiers that are advancing him towards his execution. And it says, uh, you know, he escapes, and you, we see young Captain Victory. He looks like he's twelve years old, running down the corridor. And the next thing we see, a shadow coming from a opposite corridor up against the wall and, and young victory is reacting to it is a silhouette that could absolutely be dark side, same round dome. Uh, it, it's, it's a silhouette of dark side and captain victory says black mass. And then he's standing there in the next page cowered against the wall as this new version, another dark side shadow from literally legs, arms, is looming over him, the domed head. It says, Great Black Mass terrified you until you realized he was all shadow without substance. And young Victory says, No, Grandfather, no! Then we get a giant shadow hand across young Victory's face. And it says, Whelp, how like your father you are, a feisty, rebellious, arrogant warrior, delighted in tearing up my dreams. He was the wheel horse for my enemies, a traitor to his own blood, just like you. And he says, you're just, and, and Victory says, and you, you're just a voice. Once fat with power, you finally used to stay alive in this shabby manner. I'll have nothing of what happened here or what may happen here. And he runs to what looks like a mother box, 
reaches in and activates it. And what follows is a kick-ass double-page spread of young 12-year-old Captain Victory zooming across the cosmos in the same sky sled, the exact same sky sled that Orion of the New Gods was flying in. And on the next page, it says, uh, the computer, again, very much a mother box, fashioned this cosmic craft from a design known only to my father. And then he lands this uh, sky sled, which he uses to fly. He's in the sky sled for four straight pages. It is exactly from every angle, the sky sled that uh, Orion would fly around on in the New Gods. Is Jack making a kind of a tip of the hat that Captain Vickery is the extension, is actually the son of Orion, which is who the Black Mass shadow, Black Mass, who is the who is the silhouette of Darkseid, when he says, you are just like your father, a feisty, rebellious, arrogant warrior who delighted in daring up my dreams. He was the wheel horse for my enemies, a traitor to his own blood. Orion was half, what was, was Darkseid's son and a traitor to him. So a traitor to his own blood, just like you. Well, check this out. Uh, an article a couple of years back discusses in depth if Jack was in fact tipping his hat. And it says, uh, some Jack Kirby fans, this is published by by two morrows. It's called the Captain Victory Connection, an article in in a publication put out by uh, the two, two morrows. Many uh, some Jack Kirby fans dismissed his 1980 series Captain Victory and the Galactic Rangers when it first appeared. Some viewed it as a pale imitation of Star Wars. Ironic, since so many fans view Star Wars as a pale imitation of the New Gods. But despite its merits or lack thereof, Captain Victory contains a very important tie to Kirby's Fourth World saga. This pivotal storyline runs in Captain Victory 7 through 13, culminating in a three-part origin story of Captain Victory. In issue number 7, Captain Victory is searching for Quadrant X, an uncharted part of the galaxy where four galactic outlaws are are hiding. They're called the Wonder Warriors. Uh, These Wonder Warriors uh, bear a great similarity to the female warriors in, in, in Jack's New God's work, mainly the, the, the women that worked under Granny Goodness. Um, when he hears this voice, a bodiless voice spouting commands to him, the voice says, uh, this voice is heard without a sense of an all cap source. Uh, you have reached quadrant X where the gods abide. This is in issue 10 of Captain Victory. In issue 11, Captain Victory speaks of his home planet, Think of a giant planet blazes with unrestrained energies, a place of ultimates, the people schooled in ultimates who have smashed for all time a powerful sister planet. Does this sound familiar? He proceeds to tell you that this planet's plan for ultimate war, a final struggle in which frenzied gods vanished with their leaders in the flames of hate, hate so strong that they were able to salvage and give half-life to the thoughts and voice of its great greatest disciple. When asked about the voice and the source, Captain Victory replies, there are grandfathers who are not fond of erring grandsons. He will try to kill me as he did my father. Um, As his face becomes an evil parody of itself, Captain Victory tells of his childhood in the ruling family of a dark, dismal planet of flaming energy pits called Helicost. A clever turn on the word Holocaust, which is another word of apocalypse and apocalypse. Apocalypse slash apocalypse. The two different spellings. Jack's spelling of apocalypse for the new gods and the classic apocalypse now spelling. Also, what I forgot to... On that double pager when Jack is flying on the Orion sky sled, it says... uh, 
The computer's work was apocalyptic, and that's emphasized in nature. Jack knows exactly what he's doing here. It uh, it goes on to 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 talk about the shadow of great black mass and how black mass tells young victory how like the, your father you are a feisty rebellious arrogant warrior delighting in tearing up my dreams. Um, Cap victory escapes Holocaust on a craft identical to Orion's astro harness, and it was said it was built from a design known only to his father. Uh, it doesn't take a great reading between the lines that Jack is very clearly saying that Captain Victory is the son of Orion and the grandson of Darkseid, referred to in this as Black Mass. And uh, if you are to view these books, as I have, as I'm telling you you should, you will see very clearly that Captain Victory and the Galactic Rangers are absolutely intended as an extension of... Uh, of, of Jack's fourth world books and these female warriors right here. Uh, I love it. Oh man. These, these female warriors, they're great. Um, the wonder warriors, they are so, uh, fourth world in their design. He, um, again, they, 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 they appear here in issue seven. And, um, again, this is extremely strong work. Finarkin, Finarkin, the fearless, um, you know, uh, uh, Bloody Marion. Um, we've got, uh, uh, I mean, it's just so many of these amazing characters uh, that, that Ursin the Unclean actually looks a lot like a cross between Galacta, uh, uh, Darkseid and, 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 and some of Jack's other concepts. Captain Victory brought Jack back but more importantly it got me buying pacific comics at the end of captain victory number one we see this full page ad for mike grell so let me give you a little about mike grell mike grell was one of those homegrown dc talents i've talked of who had not done any marvel work but he did a huge run on legion of superheroes that was celebrated by the fans he graduated from that to green lantern and was the green lantern artist for years in the late 70s and then he pitched and launched a late 70s fantasy title, which I've alluded to in my fantasy uh, sword and sorcery podcasts, called The Warlord, about a pilot that crashes into the middle, into Middle Earth, where there's an entire, at the middle of our Earth, uh, a world called Skataris, where all manner of prehistoric and, and, and indigen, indigenous people and mythical like realms exist. And, and, and that ran for nearly 100 issues. Mike Grell was the guy writing and drawing uh, the first four years worth of issues. He is an exceptional, very much an, uh, a student of the Neil Adams School of Illustration. Very popular. Everything he did at DC was a hit. He brought his first creator-owned property, Star Slayer, The Log of the Jolly Roger, to Pacific Comics, where again, Bill Shana says it's it sold even more than Jack's work, which doesn't surprise me. The, uh, the, the, the editor's note, they hired a man named Dave Scroge, who was the, their editor while they ran the business. At the end of Captain Victory, it says, First issues of major publications have always been prized by collectors. The comic you hold in your hands is more than just a first issue of an exciting new adventure series. Captain Victory and the Galactic Rangers is the first publication of a new comic book publisher. Pacific Comics, we are planning an ongoing schedule, and we will be here for years to come. And they were. 
Our initial publishing schedule is small in quantity, one comment per month, but certainly long on quality. In a, in, it is only fitting that our premier title is the creation of Jack the King Kirby. Over the years, Kirby has fashioned visual images of literally thousands of characters. In Captain Victory, he has brought his years of experience and creative talents into full play, breathing life into an innovative series as bold as tomorrow. We will be introducing another groundbreaking new title series, uh, a new series very soon, Star Slayer by Mike Grell. Each title is going to be published on a bi-monthly uh, bi schedule, and there are big plans afoot for more. Watch for them. Very, very exciting. This launch in 1981, I bought every single comic book that Pacific Comics did, the same way you guys bought Image Comics. It was announced in Captain Victory number two with a full-page ad that Neil Adams, Neil, uh, on my, you know, I've told you uh, I've got a, an episode about who is on my, you know, Mount Rushmore of comic books, Neil Adams, baby. There's a full-page ad for Ms. Mystic. And it, 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 you're like, wait, what? Neil Adams is now is now doing a book. Neil Adams, and in no less than uh, there it is, coming in '92. This gorgeous illustration of Ms. Mystic. Neil is at the height, the absolute peak of his powers at this time, when he shows us this, and in issue three of. Uh, of, of, of Captain Victory in issue number three. Your mind is blown because there is a five-page Ms. Mystic original Neil Adams story complementing the Jack Kirby 25-page story that is full of... I mean, Captain Victory is badass action. If you are curious about these and you buy them, you have to buy them only as single issues. There is yet to be a collected edition of this. A couple different parties have tried Dynamite, Comics, Eric Larson over at Image Comics, both wanted to do collected editions. I do not know why they have not been able to. I think it's because they have to scan directly from the comics and there's kind of a difficulty involved in that. For whatever reason, Silver Star was printed. The other story, the other series from Pacific Comics by Jack Kirby was printed by Image Comics about 15 years ago. Uh, Captain Victory is still not collected. It is, again, one of those amazing collected works. 14 plus issues, specials, annuals. Um, I mean, that's that's a lot, especially given that the first issues are 30 pages, 28 pages, 25 pages long by Jack Kirby, who I felt like this was his last hurrah, this last great concept. Again, um, on the back of, of Captain Victory 2 is, again, Major Clavis, Orca, Taran, Mr. Mind, Loveline. Uh, it says, keep an eye on Jack Kirby, on Captain Victory's backup crew. They are the star creatures who will surprise and excite you. Uh, a story for another time is when I was given these characters uh, a, a license to try and go set them up as toys and cartoons. I got very far along. Um, you know, it's just hard to pull the trigger on this stuff, but I worked with the Kirby estate to try and ignite these in the late 90s. My love for this stuff is deep. The Mike Grell Star Slayer stuff picked up exactly where he left off on Warlord, much like Frank Miller, he stopped drawing Warlord. He just wrote it for a while and stopped drawing Warlord the same way Frank stopped drawing Daredevil and just wrote it. But Mike Grell, uh, exceptional fan favorite, super popular in the, in the late 70s, early 80s. His Star Slayer book from Pacific Comics was a giant hit. Obviously, selling 140,000 copies was a huge deal in 1982. Uh, especially when you realize, again, in the upcoming sequel episode to the numbers 
um, you'll find out that Batman was was selling in the 90,000 realm at the same time that something like Mike Grell's Star Slayer was coming out the gate at 140,000 and then Neil Adams at 230,000 of Ms. Mystic number one. Pacific Comics brought you big names, bright new stars like Dave Stevens who created the Rocketeer. And then there was a comic called Pacific Comics Presents where Rocketeer would become a devoted um, uh, uh, feature. But Jack Kirby, Mike Grell, Neil Adams, they didn't stop there. Pacific Comics gave you the first work of guys like Art Adams in, in some of their science fiction anthology titles. Um, they, they would go on to produce all manner of kick-ass, great comic books that we, the comic book public, just gobbled up because we were hungry for something new. And because of Pacific Comics success, you got Kamiko, where you got Matt Wagner and his Grendel. You got uh, First Comics. You got all manner of of of, of spinoffs. Um, you know, Dark Horse Comics is a result of what happened with Pacific Comics. And finally, Image Comics is a result of what happened with Pacific Comics. If you've never been familiar with them, whether it's Star Slayer, whether it's Neil Adams, Ms. Mystic, or this amazing... I am a huge Captain Victory nut, okay? I love this stuff. I have multiples of every issue. They're available as back issues. They're going to be affordable if you want to look them up. They are truly some of Jack's most powerful work. Um, very imaginative. Uh, uh, the designs are fantastic. I know that other companies like Dynamite, I know Alex Ross did some covers and maybe input on some stories. None of it had the spark. Jack, Jack was a significant force, and this stuff definitely reflected his ability I think his desire to strut and show you that he had one last hurrah. This is a the work, a genius work of, of, of a man 10 years more than older than I am right now talking to you. Did not lose a step. Great inking, great coloring, great production values. Captain Victory launched an entire new era of independence. And the Shanus brothers were extremely bright and built out their empire. Bill would go on to be the second in command at a diamond distributor for almost two decades. We worked with him directly when we launched Image Comics. He was at all our business meetings, uh, uh, giving us input on, on Diamond. Diamond would become the only distributor of comic books for a 20-year period starting in 1996. Uh, as their rival, Capital, went out of business, uh, Bill was at the helm and helped shepherd and stabilize and, and bring the Diamond uh, uh, distribution uh, expertise to all of the various publishers, Image Comics, Marvel Comics, DC Comics, Marvel eventually went back after leading, leaving trying to do their own publishing endeavor. The story of Pacific Comics is exciting. 81 was ripe for something new, and Jack Kirby stepped into that breach one more time with a kick-ass comic, a stack of which I have right here on, on my desk next to me that I can continue to pour over and over and over and over again. The inspiration is there. The designs are there. The art is there. Um, I just loved it. I love Star Slayer. I love Ms. Mystic. I loved everything that followed. I love Silver Star. There is no Image Comics without Pacific Comics. Jack Kirby came out from behind his table in San Diego in 1992. He shuffled his way over. I've covered some of this in my Jack Kirby podcast. Eventually, I'd be going to Thousand Oaks, visiting with Jack and Roz themselves, having dinners, talking art, buying art, just, just such rich experiences with myself and the King of Comics. But it started when, when he came out from behind and he said, hey, I just... I really want to congratulate you on all your success. If, if, if I was doing what you 
were doing right now, I'd be doing what you're doing. And I said, Jack, you did do it. You did Pacific Comics. And he's like, ah, you know, I guess. No. Jack Kirby launched a brand new independent comic company that boasted some of the biggest, most exciting names. Neil Adams, Mike Grell, and Jack Kirby were big A-list stars in the comic book industry. And they built up the uh, excitement that fans like myself wanted so badly uh, and, 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 and filled a breach in the excitement of, uh, of Marvel Comics while, while stuff was resetting, while, while you know new titles were about to emerge. John Byrne's Fantastic Four would eventually capture that imagination all over again, but, but after the X-Men, there was, a, there was a brief period where there, there was nothing filling that need. Pacific Comics filled that need. I hope maybe to some of you modern listeners... That that's what Image Comics was to you guys. That's certainly what I hope it was. But I wanted to shine a light on Pacific Comics, the launch, the market in 1981, the expertise that the Shanus brothers brought into launching a competitive uh, comic book publisher that worked with top flight talent. And they had a huge impact on not just myself, but comic book retailers who did very well with their books. Oh man, I just, it, what a great time. What great memories. The Pacific Comics really was, in my mind, the precursor to what we eventually did with Image. We just had more. We, as collective talent, maybe had was were coming off more heat directly. Imagine Jack going from his hundred issue, hundred one issue Fantastic Four run to launching his own company, and he owned the New Gods, and he owned Mister Miracle and Commandy and Omak, and that's more along the lines of what we did at Image Comics. But without something like Pacific Comics, we would have never gotten anywhere. So this is the time. Um, of the show as we wrap up and I thank you for listening and and we tried to try to cover all the bases today between between Pattinson's Batman, Frank Miller, David Mazzuchelli's Year One and the launch of Pacific Comics. This is the time as we wrap that I read your reviews and you guys are so generous and you are just um, 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 giving me some amazing reviews. I'm going to read this one really special one that I received over the weekend posted to the Apple review site. All of the different... Um, Platform should have a place for you to read a review. To place a review. Um, I get the most placed on the Apple platform. I'm gonna read this. Uh, this is um, from a, a man whose last name is Blevins. Uh, his 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 name uh, on on the, his 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 username is GameZone Alpha. The title he gave us five stars. We need your review so badly. We 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 it drives so much of the platform and gives us. Um, a, a great profile, and I appreciate it so much. All your support in writing these reviews, I do not take them for granted. Some of them are long; they're well thought out. They're they're very considerate. It is my pleasure to read them. As I'm going to read this one from Game Zone Alpha, the past is finally revealed. I've been a fanboy of nerd and geek culture my whole life. I actually got into comic books because an artist named Brett Blevins had my unique last name. I got hooked. Moving on to Spider-Man, X-Men, New Mutants, becoming a serious fan of the creators that would eventually become Image. I followed them from their intro titles to their own titles and eventually over to Image, where my world changed and my passion for comics molded me into the, cop, into the pop 
culture expert that I am today. Rob's observations takes me back to that time where I would do whatever it took to learn whatever was going on behind the scenes. You have to remember there was no internet. Most of the information that we would get came from primarily Wizard Magazine, Hero Illustrated, the Comic Book Buyer's Guide, and Overstreet Price Guide, all of which reported news months after it had occurred. It is incredible that Rob has taken the time to share these moments that when you think about it, contribute to the history of comics and give us an unfiltered, detailed account of what was happening. As a kid, I had no way to ask questions to these legends, but as an adult, I have been lucky enough to meet in person and even interview online. These stories answer so many of my questions that I've had for forever and makes you really respect the success and accomplishments that these pioneers were able to achieve. They shaped entertainment as we know it. Thank you, Rob. This is an incredible show and I cannot wait to see where following it takes me. Thank you, Mr. Blevins, Mr. Game Zone Alpha. I appreciate so much and uh, I hear what you're saying, buddy. And I love bringing this history and, and 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 these comic books and these topics to you. Today, we covered Jack Kirby, Neil Adams, Mike Grell, David Mazzuchelli, Frank Miller, Denny O'Neill, Batman, Robert Pattinson, Captain Victory, Ms. Mystic, Star Slayer, and the launch of Pacific Comics. I have such a blast sharing this with you guys. Thank you for listening to this show. Thank you every every episode for tuning in, for recommending it, for, for, for re- leaving reviews, five stars, all of it. I appreciate it so much. I am all over social media. On Twitter, I am at Robert Liefeld, the full name, R-O-B-E-R-T-L-I-E-F-E-L-D. I have a blue check next to my name so you know that you are talking directly to me. As of today's recording, I have talked to dozens of people on Twitter today. I love talking back and forth to people. It's so much fun to interact with you guys and, and have that direct line that we all have to each other. On Instagram, same thing, same application. I love talking to you guys. I am at Rob Liefeld. That also has a blue check so you know it's me in both cases on Twitter and, and, and on Instagram. The blue check says that we're legit, that you are talking to the actual person. You guys DM me, you message me. I love talking to you. Thank you for all your comments. Thank you for all your interaction. I am all over Facebook. I am all over all the different groups and platforms, and I love talking to you guys. We have a Rob Observations page on Facebook, a dedicated Rob Observations with Rob Liefeld. Please look it up. Please like it and join it. Talk to me there. I love sharing time with you guys. I love um, talking comics and pop culture with you. Thank you so much for spending this time with me. You know that this is the time where you commit to me that you're going to take care of yourself, okay? You're going you're, you're gonna, to you're gonna be good to yourself, uh, uh, and, and, and I believe you. I buy it. I know you are. Because you need to. We all need to. So you stay safe, okay? And uh, uh, that that is that we're going to make that mutual pledge to each other. We're, we're both going to stay safe. And we're going to meet back up here again. And we're going to talk again real soon. 